The land was ours before we were the lands. She was our land more than a hundred years. Before we were her people, she was ours. In Massachusetts, in Virginia, but we were England's, still colonials, possessing what we were still unpossessed by, possessed by what we now no more possessed. Something we were withholding made us weak, until we found out it was ourselves. We were withholding from our land of living, and forthwith found salvation and surrender. Such as we were, we gave ourselves outright. The deed of gift was many deeds of war, to the land vaguely realizing westward, but still unstoried, artless, unenhanced. Such as she was, such as she would become. Robert Frost, The Gift Outright. Movies by Minutes, project number five. It's Silverado at this time. That's no jive by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids, because here we go. Howdy, and welcome to another episode of the Silverado Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed western, Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host this week. You can call me The Professor. Hmm. The fabled taciturnity of the western hero and allied pastoral types in our culture, John P. Sisk explains in The American Scholar, summer 1987, appeals to a widespread conviction that actions speak louder than words are more honest than words, and may very well be grounded on positions of philosophic integrity that a Socrates would quickly obfuscate with his verbosity. Thus, it is easy for poets and storytellers, including movie makers, to imagine that a cowboy, blessed with great stretches of time when he is alone with nature, cannot avoid dwelling on the eternal verities. I don't know about eternal verities, but Peyton's lying by the campfire, a rock for his pillow. He's just been explaining what happened to his horse and all his things. Payton figured it was just bad luck. Angle over Payton on Emmett. Emmett leans over to retrieve the kettle from the fire, except he just poured himself a drink from that kettle not even two minutes ago, as Payton's monologuing began. Emmett. Well, looks like those boys are headed south, but they weren't the same ones that jumped me. Beat. As he pours, then returns the kettle. So where are you going? Back to Payton, but no longer tight on his face. He looks up to the left thinking, then fairly quickly looks toward Emmett. Peyton, where's the pinto going? In the script we get a little more dialogue here. Emmett, I gotta stop by Turley and meet a guy. Peyton, where's Turley? Emmett, south of here, past Chamayo. Peyton, maybe I'll go along as far as Chamayo. Get me some clothes. Maybe a bath. Emmett, yeah, maybe a bath. Emmett settles down at his saddle and pulls a blanket over himself. Payton glances at the rifle in its scabbard on the Pinto's saddle by his head. Payton, is this loaded? Emmett nods and closes his eyes. Payton smiles at the implied trust and settles down himself. In the film, we skip all that and cut to these two men, Payton still in his long johns, riding, away from camera, away from the wilderness, into the town of Chimayo. Jackson Turner, The Frontier in American History. Quote, the separation of the western man from the seaboard and his environment 
made him in a large degree free from European precedents and forces. He looked at things independently and with small regard or appreciation for the best old world experience. He had no ideal of a philosophical, eclectic nation that would advance civilization by intercourse with foreigners and familiarity with their point of view and readiness to adopt whatever is best and most suitable in their ideas, manners, and customs. His was rather the ideal of conserving and developing what was original and valuable in this new country. The entrance of old society upon free lands meant to him opportunity for a new type of democracy and new popular ideals. The West was not conservative. Buoyant self-confidence and self-assertion were distinguishing traits in its composition. It saw in its growth nothing less than a new order of society and state. In this conception were elements of evil and elements of good. But the fundamental fact in regard to this new society was its relation to land. French political scientist Professor Emile Boutmy has said of the United States, quote, Their one primary and predominant object is to cultivate and settle these prairies, forests, and vast wastelands. The striking and peculiar characteristic of American society is that it is not so much a democracy as a huge commercial company for the discovery, cultivation, and capitalization of its enormous territory. The United States are primarily a commercial society, and only secondarily a nation. End quote. Of course, this involves a serious misapprehension. By the very fact of the task here set forth, far-reaching ideals of the state and of society have been evolved in the West, accompanied by loyalty to the nation representative of these ideals. But Monsieur Boutmy's description hits the substantial fact that the fundamental traits of the man of the interior were due to the free lands of the West. These turned his attention to the great task of subduing them to the purposes of civilization and to the task of advancing his economic and social status in the new democracy which he was helping to create. Art, literature, refinement, scientific administration all had to give way to this titanic labor. Energy, incessant activity, became the lot of this new American. Says a traveler of the time of Andrew Jackson, quote, America is like a vast workshop, over the door of which is printed in blazing characters, no admittance here, except on business, end quote. The West of our own day reminds James Bryce in his book, The American Commonwealth, quote, of the crowd which Vathek found in the hall of Eblis, each darting hither and thither with swift steps and unquiet mien, driven to and fro by a fire in the heart. Time seems too short for what they have to do, and the result always to come short of their desire, end quote. Which, that's a reference to William Beckford's 1786 novel, Vathek, an Arabian tale. And the language there intrigues me as I'm the author of the Groundhog Day Project blog and currently have a Movies by Minutes project under that same name. And time loops are my thing. And I find myself thinking about life in the Old West as a resumption of day after day of mostly the same thing. The individual life might be different from the one next to it, but the rancher's day is as much the same from day to day as the gunfighter's day, the madam's day, the gambler's day, the corrupt sheriff's day, etc. And it's much the same for each of us today, I suppose. We try and we try to find our novel experiences, but inevitably, one unique experience just makes us seek another. But unless we are one of the lucky ones, we've got to be productive members of society and work, 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 day in and day out. And what's novel is little more than a hobby. But I suppose I have sidetracked myself into another show altogether. Back to Turner. But freelance and the consciousness of working out their social destiny did more than turn the Westerner to material interests and devote him to a restless existence. They promoted equality among the Western settlers, 
and reacted as a check on the aristocratic influences of the East, where everybody could have a farm, almost for taking it. Economic equality easily resulted, and this involved political equality. Not without a struggle would the Western man abandon this ideal, and it goes far to explain the unrest in the remote West today. Western democracy included individual liberty, as well as equality. The frontiersman was impatient of restraints. He knew how to preserve order, even in the absence of legal authority. If there were cattle thieves, lynch law was sudden and effective. The regulators of the Carolinas were the predecessors of the Claims Associations of Iowa and the Vigilance Committees of California. But the individual was not ready to submit to complex regulations. Population was sparse. There was no multitude of jostling interests, as in older settlements, demanding an elaborate system of personal restraints. Society became atomic. There was a reproduction of the primitive idea of the personality of the law. A crime was more an offense against the victim than a violation of the law of the land. Substantial justice, secured in the most direct way, was the ideal of the backwoodsman. He had little patience with finely drawn distinctions or scruples of method. If the thing was one proper to be done, then the most immediate, rough and ready, effective way was the best way. It followed from the lack of organized political life, from the atomic conditions of the backwoods society, that the individual was exalted and given free play. The West was another name for opportunity. Here were mines to be seized, fertile valleys to be preempted, all the natural resources open to the shrewdest and the boldest. The United States is unique in the extent to which the individual has been given an open field, unchecked by restraints of an old social order, or of scientific administration of government. The self-made man was the Western man's ideal, was the kind of man that all men might become. Out of his wilderness experience, out of the freedom of his opportunities, he fashioned a formula for social regeneration, the freedom of the individual to seek his own. He did not consider that his conditions were exceptional and temporary. End quote. He did not consider that his conditions were exceptional and temporary. Hmm. In Wilderness in the American Mind, Roderick Fraser Nash expounds on Turner's perspective, citing an Atlantic Monthly piece by Turner. September 1896. Quote, it argued that the frontier not only made the American different from the European, but better. Out of his wilderness experience, Turner wrote, out of the freedom of his opportunities, he fashioned a formula for social regeneration, the freedom of the individual to seek his own. Turner believed, in short, that democracy was a forest product. Living in the wilderness, the returning to primitive conditions, fostered individualism, independence, and confidence in the common man that encouraged self-government. While Turner occasionally admitted that frontier democracy had its liabilities, his attempts at impartiality only thinly masked a conviction that government by the people was far superior to old-world despotism. Indeed, by virtue of being wild, the new world was a clean slate to which idealists could bring their dreams for a better life. Triumphantly, Turner concluded, the very fact of the wilderness appealed to men as a far, blank page on which to write a new chapter in the story of man's struggle for a higher type of society. Associated in this way with democracy and messianic idealism, wild country acquired new value. Turner recast its role from that of an enemy which civilization had to conquer to a beneficent influence on men and institutions. His greatest service to wilderness consisted of linking it in the minds of his countrymen with sacred American virtues. End quote. But then, 
we must consider that our conditions might be exceptional and temporary. That rugged individualism does not bring us to democracy, at least long term, because we have a tendency to blame the individual for any failings, regardless of the larger societal forces that have now been put in place around and over us all. In Utopia, Thomas More says, quote, If you do not find a remedy to these evils, it is idle to boast of your severity in punishing theft. Your policy may have the appearance of justice, but it is really neither just nor expedient. If you allow your people to be badly brought up and their habits to be corrupted little by little from childhood, and if you then punish them for those crimes to which their early training has disposed them, what else is this, I ask, but first making them thieves and then punishing them for it? End quote. Exterior, entering Chamayo, day. Emmett and Payton enter the town past a cluster of teepees. Three cavalry troopers ride past them, the script says. But they pass native men and women, and it's a covered wagon leaving to the left that has one soldier driving, two more following behind on horseback. A native man on a palomino comes in a frame from the right, crossing left between us and our two leading men. Straight ahead, we've got the side view of an adobe church. Chamayo, though this town is named in the script, not in the film, is the name of an actual unincorporated town in New Mexico, about 174 miles east-southeast from Turley. The Potrero Plaza of Chamayo is famous for its Catholic chapel, the Santuario de Nuestro Señor de Escapulos, named for and specifically set up for the worship of Cristo Negro, the Black Christ of Escapulos, Guatemala. Esquipulus.com.gt explains, quote, In the sacred city of Copan, great festivals were celebrated in honor of the Mayan god Ek Campula, a word that means the one who pushes the clouds, since he was attributed the power to ward off the rains and allow the necessary sunny days to prepare planting. Ek Campula, who was black in color, was kneeling with a torch in his left hand. His figure can be seen in the steps of one of the temples of Copan. This story is part of a shorty legend that was related to the anthropologist Carlos Navarrete, one of the most diligent researchers on the Black Christ of Esquipolis, by an old man from the border area between Guatemala and Honduras. The Black Christ of Esquipolis is a representation of a dead man, covered in blood. The incarnation is not the same throughout the body, but stained and splattered with coagulated blood and with tears on the skin to make clear the pitiful state of the body of Jesus Christ, quoted in 1723 the priest Nicolas de Paz. According to Navarrete, in 1570, when the Spanish arrived in Copan, pilgrimages to this sacred site were still being made on the Atlantic coast from Honduras. The indigenous people even came from the Lempira region and the mountainous towns of Guatemala. During the festival, they cleaned the squares and temples and performed their ceremonies and offerings for several days. Observing the fidelity of the natives to their cult, the missionaries agreed to build a Catholic temple within the Chorty area. The purpose was to reorient the ancestral faith of the indigenous people and substitute it for the Christian faith, which materialized in a black image of the crucified Christ, the same color as Ek Campula, explains Navarrete. End quote. NewMexicoHistory.org explains, quote, By 1805, if not earlier, devotion to a miraculous Guatemalan image of Christ crucified known as Our Lord of Escapolis, Nuestro Señor de Escapolis, had become popular at El Portrero. In that year, a child was christened with the name Juan de Escapolis by Fray Sebastián Álvarez, 
the resident Franciscan friar at Santa Cruz de la Cañada. In 1813, Bernardo Abeta, uncle of the child so christened, petitioned in the name of the residents of El Potrero to the same Fray Sebastian for permission to build a chapel dedicated to our lord of Escipolas, who had already been honored since 1810 in a small chapel of the Abeta family. Fray Sebastian wrote, in support of Abeta's petition in 1813, that people had been coming to Abeta's chapel for some time to give praise to the sovereign redeemer and to relieve their ailments. He also stated the location and name of the new chapel at the said plaza, or Rancho del Portrero, which is called El Santuario de Escipolas. By 1816, the Portrero Chapel was completed, and its elegant carved door, still to be seen today, was made by carpenter Pedro Dominguez at the expense of Fray José Correa, the resident friar at Santa Cruz who had succeeded Alvarez. Devotion to Our Lord of Escipolas originated at an early colonial shrine in Guatemala where the earth itself was said to be effective in curing illnesses. This miraculous statue of Christ is attached to a living cross, painted green and sprouting leaves and branches, symbolic of its healing and life-giving qualities. At both the shrine in Guatemala and at El Santuario, pilgrims come from the distant places to be healed. End quote. And here rides Payton, stripped of his property and left for dead. We reverse as Peyton and Emmett ride through the open wooden gate in the adobe wall surrounding the town, riding now toward us. The script says, Exterior, street, Chimayo, day. The little settlement is the center of civilization for miles around. The U.S. Cavalry maintains an outpost here, and there are many soldiers on the street. Emmett and Peyton pull up to the general store. Peyton dismounts and hands his reins to Emmett. Passers-by look with curiosity at the undressed Peyton. But the man who walks past the two of them, just as they ride through the open gate, pays no attention to Peyton at all. Emmett says, whoa. Their horses stop, and Peyton immediately dismounts. Emmett, I'll get these horses tended to. Peyton hands the Pinto's reins to Emmett. And while Emmett digs into his pocket already, Peyton has to wait. And Klein is a little awkward, because of course he knows Glenn will toss him a coin, but Glenn cannot actually retrieve said coin until after he has the reins to the Pintos. So slowing down a movie like this, as the movies by minutes approach is wont to do, it feels like Payton expects a handout here, when Emmett has already saved his life. Finally, Emmett flips a coin to Payton. Payton catches it, looks at it, then turns his attention again to Emmett. Payton, I'm good for it. Emmett clicks and pulls both horses to his left, our right, and our angle changes to be behind Peyton as he watches Emmett leave. The front of the church is now dominating the left of screen. Camera pans right. A woman and a girl approach, camera on the right, both eyeing Peyton. The woman speeds up, pulling the girl along. The girl keeps looking toward Peyton. Peyton moves to tip his hat, but he is wearing no hat, and maybe only now remembers that he is still in his long johns and socks. We return to something like the previous angle of Payton with the gate behind him, Emmett and the horse gone, and the angle just different enough that the teepee that was visible through the open gate is now directly behind Payton. He is framed in the open gate, the wilderness far behind. Just as we might notice the man, possibly a soldier, on horseback passing from right to left beyond the wall, we get a snap zoom as Payton's attention finds an unlikely focus. Reverse for the POV shot and we have to infer what we are seeing. Near a man walking a goat, and two men getting water from a well, there is a man throwing a coat over the back of a bay horse. Payton's horse. Also, 
That coat is a long gray coat, like maybe Peyton was once a Confederate soldier. That's all there is for Minute 9 of Silverado. I've been your host, Professor Robert E.G. Black, host of Such Movies by Minutes podcast as Two Minutes About Time, Pump Up the Minute, Five Minute Arrival, Twin Peaks Radio, and Minutia X Machina. You can find links to these and more at lemmingdrops.com. I will be your host next time as well. In the meantime, you can find the Silverado Minute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, silveradominute.com. Follow the show on Twitter at SilveradoMXM, or join the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Salute, on Facebook. Join me here again next time on the Silverado Minute. Yeehaw! The striking and peculiar characteristic of American society is that it is not so much a democracy as a huge commercial... <laughs> Use French. We try and do a French... Wait, French. Oh, ho, ho. They won't promote me. That would be funny. Where was I?